Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Hear the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When you're working on a project, whether it's a big project or a small project, maybe you're building a shelf, maybe you're cutting the grass, maybe you're preparing dinner, or maybe it's a bigger project, a reno project on your home or something like that, and someone comes along and makes a comment about your project and your progress, what kind of comment do you like to hear? A comment like, wow, that's great. It's really coming along. Nice job. That's beautiful. Or, that's it? That, that's all you've done? It looks like you haven't done much of anything yet. Or did you notice the error over there? Are you going to fix that? What kind of comment do you prefer? Well, of course you prefer the first kind of comments, right? Recognizing what you've done and recognizing that you've made some sort of progress on your project. And it's very discouraging when someone comes along and points out the the flaws or the slowness of the project or the errors of it. Now, if you've been following along in Haggai, you know that the people are working on a project, a major renovation project. They hadn't been. When we meet the people, we find that they're back in the land because of their sins. God had sent them to exile, the the Jewish people, exile into Babylon. But then he had brought them back to the land of Judea and Jerusalem, and they were rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And they had made a start on rebuilding the temple 16 years before Haggai preached, but they had really gotten distracted and they were working on their houses. They were fixing up their houses and forgetting about the temple, but their economics were not working out because they didn't want God to dwell in their midst. And that's what they were saying to him by neglecting the temple. And so the first sermon we heard of Haggai, God said, consider your ways. The first part of chapter 1. Consider your ways, consider your priorities, and build my house, have me in the midst of you, and you will see how your life is, is better when I'm in the middle of your life. And then last week, 
the text that Derek handled, they did it. Haggai is the most successful prophet of the Old Testament. He preached one sermon, and it worked. The people responded. We heard last week that the Lord stirred them up. And what did they do? They began to work. There's nothing else like this in the whole Old Testament. This sort of a a, a mass response. Well, perhaps with Jonah. I guess with Nineveh, there was a mass response. But here, we have this response very quickly, and the people started to work. And by the time we get to chapter 2, they'd been working for about four weeks, about a month, on this massive project of rebuilding the temple that the Babylonians destroyed. But, some astute scholars have calculated that this date on which this this sermon comes today, was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so, they had just been resting for a whole week. So out of that month, they had just rested for a whole week. And this same scholar has also calculated with Sabbath days and new moons and other rest days that they had had 13 rest days during these four weeks. So in other words... They had really been working for a little over two weeks on this massive project. And also, if you know how projects go in the house, there are two aspects of projects that take a great deal of time and they aren't much fun. The preparation work and the cleanup work. And here, they were dealing with piles of rubble. So the preparation work would have been massive before they could even make any visible progress. So it's likely that they hadn't made any visible progress. And in addition, to make matters worse, this was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated God's provision while they were in the wilderness. And so there might have been something of a a contradiction. God provided us in the wilderness, but is He providing for us now? And in addition to that, during the Feast of Tabernacles, people would have come in from the countryside. And they would have probably made some comments. How's it been going? Well, we've been working on the temple. Really? It doesn't look like it. They probably would have made some some critical comments. Those who don't lift a finger to help sometimes are the first one to make snide comments about the work of other people. And so there were a number of factors that were discouraging to the people. And so God's message through Haggai, this third message, comes again to three groups or individuals. First we have... Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and we've already noticed that Zerubbabel was the heir to the throne of David. He should have been the king of Judah and of Israel, but he wasn't because there was a pagan king, Darius, who was the king, and they were a a dominated people, the Jews. And then we have Joshua, remember that name, Joshua, he was the high priest, the son of Jehozadak. So we have the should-be king, we have the priest, and we have in Haggai the prophet. So we have the three offices of the Old Testament, and we also have the remnant. Now, you met the remnant last week, and there's a a great deal of information in the Old Testament about the remnant. God would send many away, but He would bring a remnant back. This is all that's left of His people, the remnant. Now, um, these were those, the same ones, whom God had stirred up. 
stirred up to to work. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God. So these are the exact same ones who had responded because God had stirred them up. And after a month of little or no visible progress, they would have been quite discouraged. And so what we expect from God is a, a message of encouragement, right? That's what we would expect. God would come along and say, you're doing great, the, the work's progressing, you're, I'm, I'm so happy with what's going on, but that's not what we find here. God asks them some questions in verse 3. In verse 3 it says, God says to them, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And that's a good question. How many of those present were, were there who, when they were children, had seen the, the temple in its glory? The, the temple that Solomon had built. How many were there? If you go back to Ezra, chapter 3, verse 12, you find that 16 years before we meet this, we hear this sermon of Haggai, 16 years before, there had been some. There had been some of the older people who in their childhood had seen the temple. And so when they laid the foundations again in Ezra chapter 3, some of them rejoiced and others wept. They wept aloud because of the, the, the difference between this, this simple foundation surrounded by rubble and the glory of Solomon's temple. Now, those... Older people, as it describes them, would have been at least in their mid-50s. In their mid-50s. Those were the old people of Ezra chapter chapter 3. Now we're 16 years later. And so these people, if there were any left, that's the question, they would have been at least in their 70s. And they would have been few. Because that would have been a, a, a quite an old age in, in their 70s. And, and he asks, are there any of you... Who saw? Are there any of you who can make the comparison? And then he he says to them, How do you see it now? Question, second question, how do you see it now? And then he basically answers the question for them. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? We're expecting a, a message of encouragement. And that's what God says to them. Did you see the, the former temple? How many of you have seen it? Well, even if you haven't seen it, you've heard about it. And how do you see what's going on now? Doesn't it look like nothing in comparison with the glory of Solomon's temple? So, this seems kind of like a cruel setup, doesn't it? Chapter 1, people, your priorities are out of place. Get to work. And so, he stirs them up, and they get to work. And they work for as much as they can during that month. And they don't get very far. And then God comes along and says, you haven't done much, have you? You haven't accomplished much. And whatever you accomplished looks like nothing. It, it looks at first like a cruel setup on God's part, stirring them up to work and then showing how little they had accomplished. However, this is two things at least. It's astute psychology which we often don't understand. When somebody is discouraged, when somebody is despondent, oftentimes we make the mistake 
of trying to cheer them up immediately. And we ignore the factors that are making them despondent. And what we really need to do is enter into their despondency and affirm the, the reasons for their depression or their despondency. So this is very astute psychology. Rather than just papering over what everybody could see, God says, I understand what you're experiencing. I I know how this looks in your sight. It looks like nothing, doesn't it? And then that sets that, that, that honest evaluation of their situation prepares the way, sets things up for the encouraging message that's going to come in the rest of this chapter or the rest of this section. But before we get to the encouraging section, I think it'll be helpful to recognize how similar the people's experience is here to our common experience. If we're believers in Jesus, we hear God's Word, and sometimes we're convicted. We're convicted about our priorities. We're convicted about the way we're living our lives. And then God stirs us up to repentance. God stirs us up to to work, to to change, to exert effort, to to try to move towards God and to to remedy things in our lives. And then then we, with enthusiasm, work on things for a, a little while. And then we get discouraged. Because... We just don't, don't seem to be getting anywhere. And so, I think we can understand these people very well. We work on our marriage. We really want it to be better. And we exert effort, and, and then we find that it, it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. Or, or we're distressed about, about our child-rearing, and so we, we, we reorder our, our priorities and with, with great enthusiasm. We say, I'm going, I'm going to change. I'm, I'm going to be a better father or mother, I'm going to apply biblical principles, and then, and then the patterns just seem to continue, or, or we have a sin that just seems to, to grip us constantly, and we, we can't get rid of it, and with enthusiasm, we, we reorder our lives, and, and we make some headway, and then, and then we, we fall back. We work on our disciplines. Or we work, as we've noticed, on the New Testament version of building the temple. And that is building the church. We no longer have a physical temple. We are, if we're believers in Christ, if we're a Christian church, we are the temple. So what is New Testament temple building? It's what we're doing here, folks. And I get these questions all the time. And and sometimes they're very discouraging Oh, how long how long's your church been around? Oh, about four years. And what's the next question? How how many people do you have? How many people do you have? And I say, well, we have about about this many. And sometimes I can see the the response. That that seems to be very little, doesn't it? it, it doesn't it seem like nothing? In your eyes, this is the constant companion of, of church planters and of pastors. The, the discouragement that can set in when, when with great enthusiasm we make efforts and they don't seem to be accomplishing much. This is, this is a Christian experience. It's a pastor's experience. And so I think we can understand these people, which I, which I hope means that we're ready for the message. Are you ready for the message? 
Well, addressing each of these individually, God commanded these people to be strong. Now, that's, at first glance, not very helpful. He's, he's going to weak, discouraged people, and he says, buck up, be strong, act like you're strong. And this is a very clear echo of something that has happened throughout Scripture. This word from the Lord, be strong, be strong, be strong, but very specifically in one case. We have three persons here, right? Or three groups. We have Zerubbabel. Then we have, who's the second one? Joshua, the high priest. And that should ring a bell in our minds if we've read Old Testament history. Wait a minute, there was, a, there was an earlier Joshua, Joshua, Jesus. There was an earlier one who received a message that was similar to this. And so we go back to Joshua, chapter 1, and we read this. This is, this is God's Word uh, through, through Moses um, to, to Joshua. Actually, it's after Moses' death. The word to Joshua. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong. Be strong. Do not be afraid, Joshua. Be strong. Be strong. And now, now, centuries later, to another Joshua, along with his companions, God says, again, be strong. And it's interesting to note, when he says be strong... Back in Haggai chapter 2, it says, Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, and we're expecting what? All you remnant. But what do we hear? All you people of the land. When did, when did God say to the first Joshua to be strong? Before they were going to go in and take the land. And now, he's been addressing them and saying, Be strong, O remnant, which is to say, a small group. And now he turns and he calls them what? The people of the land. He said to be strong to the first Joshua before taking the land. And now he says, Be strong because you are the people of the land. Remember that. You're back here. Rather than emphasizing their smallness, emphasizing where they are and who they are. Now, um... The purpose of their being strong was to keep working. Uh, if we look at verse 4, be strong, be strong, be strong, and then he says, work, work. You're discouraged, it's difficult, doesn't look like you've gotten very far, but, but keep working, keep working. And then he added the reason for their strength. He said, for the second time, I am with you. I am with you. What you're doing looks like it's not a big deal. But here's the big deal. I am with you. In chapter 1, verse 13, we saw it last week. He said, I am with you. 
Once again, he says, I am with you. This is the game changer, folks. This is the thing that makes all the difference in the world. I am with you. Even if what you're doing looks like it's no big deal, even if it looks like you're not making any progress, this is the thing on which you need to focus. I am with you. And he reminded them that this is the distinguishing characteristic of the people of God since they came out of Egypt. There's a fascinating conversation. Well, we'll first look what he says in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 5. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. We, we heard about the covenant in chapter 1. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst Fear not. So he says, this, this characteristic that I am with you, that my presence remains among you, my spirit remains among you, this is that which I covenanted with you, I promised you when you came out of Egypt. And there's a fascinating conversation if we go back to that time when they were coming out of Egypt. And if you look at Exodus 33, verse 14, God said something from, uh, similar. To Moses, And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. You see what Moses is saying? God says, I will go with you. My presence will be with you. And Moses said, if not, no sense in going. There's no sense in going. Why bother going up? If your presence is not with us, then who are we? We are just like every other people on the face of the earth. The distinguishing characteristic of the people of God in all generations is that God is with us. God remains with us. In Haggai it says, My spirit stands with you. My spirit remains with you. And I want you to see, he says two different ways, but it means the same thing. He says, I am with you. And he says, My spirit stands with you. How is God with us? God is with us by His Holy Spirit who stands with us. Us. Therefore, because He was with them, His Spirit standing with them, they could be strong, they could work, and they could not be afraid. In addition to His presence, which is the game changer here, that, that would have been enough. That would have been enough, right? Even if, even if their efforts would never come to anything, that would be enough. But then He encourages them and says, I'm going to take care of the results of your work. Your work looks like no big deal. Your work looks like it's not getting anywhere, which is how we often feel in life and in ministry. But he says, I'm going to take care of the results. You just work, and I'm going to do something that you, you can't even believe it. You couldn't even believe it if you imagined it now. It's going to be so grandiose. And what does he say? Verses 6 and 7. He says, in a little while, I'm going to shake things up. Literally, that's what he says. I am going to shake. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations. 
I am going to shake up the universe, God says. And the result of that, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So he's going to, I guess we could say it this way, shake down the nations, and he will, he will shake them down, and they will contribute their treasures to the temple, And he says, the silver is mine, verse 8, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And then he says, they will pour so much wealth into this temple, the nations, that the, verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. He says, I will take it upon myself. You work. You work, keep, keep clearing out the rubble, keep working, and it would take them four more years until they, they completed their work. But he says, you keep working, and I will take charge of making this house glorious. Now, God fulfilled this promise in successive contributions of riches, of riches to the temple work. And it's interesting, when he says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, he's staking a military claim. There's an interesting parallel in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 3, that actually Derek pointed out to me. When the Syrian king comes to Israel, and he wants to take it over, he says, your silver is mine and your gold is mine. That's a military claim. And so God is saying, staking the Lord of hosts, which means what? The Lord of armies is staking a military claim over the nations that their possessions belong to him. He's going to use them for the temple. And he did. Follow this. Follow how God builds his dwelling place throughout the, all of history. Let's go back. Let's go back to Egypt. Do you remember what they built after they came out of Egypt? It was called the tabernacle. It was a tent temple, a portable temple. And they built it with precious objects that they had gotten from whom? These were slaves. Do you remember? Then when they were going out of Egypt, God said, ask all your neighbors to give you things. And the Egyptians wanted them to get get going and get out of there because of the plagues. And the Egyptians gave them all these precious things. And it says that they plundered the Egyptians. And then when it came time for this slave people to build a tabernacle, they had gold and they had silver and they had precious things from the Egyptians. That's how God built His first physical dwelling place. And then, if you go to Solomon, Solomon sends to King Hiram of Tyre. And he sends cedars for Solomon to build the temple. So the tabernacle was built by the plundering of the nations. The the temple of Solomon was built with with riches from the nations. And then we have, moving up to the time in, in which we are now with Haggai, King Cyrus of Persia commanded that the reconstructed temple be larger than Solomon's temple and paid for out of the Persian royal treasury. Ezra chapter 6. And then, later, King Darius, the one we meet here, King Darius commanded that the surrounding nations provide supplies for the construction of the temple. Also, Ezra chapter 6. Another Persian king, Artaxerxes, he and his officials, they contributed silver and gold, apparently out of their own pockets, for the construction of the temple. Ezra chapter 7. And then finally, King Herod. 
He built the magnificent temple that was still standing in Jesus' day. It was bigger than Solomon's temple. It was more magnificent than Solomon's temple. So much so that in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, the, the apostles, the disciples pointed to it and said to Jesus, Isn't this building amazing? Look at the stones here. Isn't this building incredible? So what do we see here all through the Old Testament times? How did God build His dwelling place? By shaking down the nations, by plundering the nations, by claiming the riches of the nations. That's how He built His dwelling place. But there's something of a difficulty, because when God had them build the tabernacle, He then filled it with His glory. And then when God had Solomon build the temple, we read that once again He filled it with His glory. Visibly. He filled it with the cloud of His glory. And then we have this reconstructed temple, and we never have any record of God filling it with His glory. Now, I know this is an argument from silence, it's just not mentioned, but it it seems like something that should be mentioned if it happened. It was filled with silver and gold from the nations, but but what's the point? What's the point of beautiful stones? What's the point of silver and gold if God doesn't fill it with His own glory? And that, that, that makes us scratch our heads and makes us wonder if, if God is transitioning away from, from the emphasis on, on this physical dwelling place. And if so then where is He going to live? What's He going to do? How is He going to abide among us if if it's not going to be in the glorious temple? And we saw in chapter 1 that He did something even more glorious, that the Word became flesh and, and made His tabernacle among us. Let me ask you, which is more impressive? A cloud filling a building... Or the eternal Son of God becoming a human? Which is more amazing? Which is more praiseworthy? Which is more inspiring? Which is more awesome? It's it's that God would become one of us and dwell in human flesh. And then we find that He's building His temple. And it's called the church. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you all... You all, you as the people of God, you are the temple of God. And let me ask you, from where is He getting the materials for this new temple? The church. He's doing like He always does. He's plundering the nations. That's what He does. And it's not just cheap stuff like silver and gold. It's expensive, precious treasures of the nations. Men and women and boys and girls. The really precious things from the nations. He's shaking down the nations and He's filling His temple with the really precious things from the nations. And we find actually that Haggai, not not a real commonly quoted book, but Haggai shows up in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27 says, This phrase, no, verse 26, And 
that at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me ask you something. Where's the tabernacle today that they built in the wilderness? No trace of it. Where's where's Solomon's temple? Well, we know where it was, and there may be some blocks from it left. Where's the temple that they rebuilt in Haggai's day? Maybe some some remnant of it there in Jerusalem. Where's, Where's Herod's temple? It was knocked down in 70 A.D., these things could be shaken, and they were shaken. But, but we find here the, the final fulfillment of this is that, that God was building something that couldn't be shaken. He says, I'm going to shake everything, everything that's been made. It's all going to crumble. But, but there's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And therefore, since we are receiving that kingdom of which the church is a part that cannot be shaken, let us worship with reverence and with awe. And there's one final reference to Haggai in Revelation, and it says that towards the end of Revelation, verse 21, it says, "Its light will be by its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations." You see, that's the that's the plan. That's what God's doing. He's building something that can't be knocked down, that can't disintegrate, that can't be conquered. He's building a kingdom and He's building it by plundering the nations and bringing people like you and me into His eternal kingdom. Jesus told a parable, and it was a very practical sort of parable. He said, if if there's a strong man, and he's got possessions that you want and you want to go into that strong man's house and take his possessions, the first thing you need to do is you need to tie up the strong man. And then, once you tie up the strong man, you can go into his house, and you can take whatever you want. And he told that in the context of him casting out demons. So what was he saying? This is a strong man. This is a strong man that for generation after generation has held the nation captive in error and in blindness and in darkness. But there's a stronger one who came. And on the cross, He disarmed that strong man. He tied him up. He bound him. And now He can go into His house and He can take whatever He wants out of that strong man's house. The stronger man has come. And that's what He's doing. The strong man has bound, the stronger man has bound Satan. And he is plundering his house by rescuing out of his clutches all who will bow the knee to Jesus. All those who will believe in Him and enter into that eternal kingdom. And so, just as God said to the people through Haggai, He says to us today, Be strong. Keep working. Don't be afraid. I am with you. 
My Spirit stands with you and I will take charge. I will take charge of glorifying my own name. I will take charge of building my dwelling place. I will shake down the nations. I will plunder the nations. I will bring their precious things into my house. So, Christians, Florida Coast Church, here's the simple message. Just keep doing what God has called you to do, and He will take care of using those little efforts that may seem like nothing in our eyes to glorify Himself and bring the riches of the nations into His kingdom. Let's pray. Our God, our God, thank You for shaking down the nations. (laughs) Thank You for going into the strong man's house and tying him up and rescuing us from his clutches. And we pray, O God, through us, through our little efforts, through our weak work, that You would rescue many from the strong man's house, that You would shake many out of the nations and into Your eternal kingdom, and that You would enable us not to be afraid, not to be discouraged, but rather to work at what You've called us to do. O Lord, we pray that Your Spirit who stands among us would make us strong people, even though we're weak, so that we could do the work that You've called us to do, trusting that You would take our little and unworthy efforts and that You would use them to build Your eternal kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.